So we're at Romans 9. Uh, we're about halfway through. Uh, we're going to be in a very difficult situation passage this week, and we'll look at that. We'll finish Romans 9. I do. Um, I, Romans 9 was difficult, but then uh, all week I've been teaching the uh, elementary school kids in uh, VBS, so I'm not sure which one's uh, more uh, difficult. It's been an interesting week uh, with those uh, kids. So uh, we're going to endeavor through uh, Romans 9 today. There's a phrase, uh, deep, uh, deep in the woods or deep in the weeds, and that's right where we're at here in the middle of Romans 9. Uh, this, this is one of the most controversial passages uh, that we will uh, come across in the New Testament, and really uh, many theologians disagree on how this is to be interpreted. I will give you my uh, best effort here this morning. So let's start with verse uh, 17 here. Uh, let's start with verse 16. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Keep that in mind as we go through the next five or six verses here. And then he goes back into the Old Testament, for Paul says, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. This is speaking of God, not Pharaoh. And then in verse uh, 19, You will say to me then, What does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And this is Paul making, uh, anticipating an argument here. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? That's pretty simple language. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why do you have, why have you made me like this? And then Paul is going to use an example of the potter and the clay here in verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul delves deep into... Uh, the sovereignty of God here. He goes back uh, to the Old Testament example in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. We won't take to look at this, but look very carefully. Um, Paul uses his example of Pharaoh. It's an example of God showing great, it's not an example of God showing great mercy here, but it's of God showing, uh, not showing any mercy at all. The point here is, is that God can show mercy to whom he will, and he chooses not to. So the point of Pharaoh is that, not, that, not a, is that not God is not showing great mercy, but God is not showing any mercy at all. In fact, uh, it, it's, Pharaoh is not an example of God's mercy, but an example of God's power. Uh, if you look again at verse 17, he says here, um, for the scriptures say, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may make my power in you known. And that is, that's, that's God's purpose uh, with Pharaoh. So it's important to keep that in mind. So the context here is Exodus chapter 9. This is during the plagues that are coming, going on in Egypt. Um, 
the statement comes between the sixth and the seventh plague that Paul pulls out of Exodus and um, the, uh, the, the plagues that, were, that God had sent uh, to the to children, for the children of Israel's sake on Egypt. And so uh, that's the context here. And so uh, Moses is speaking uh, God's words to Pharaoh, and he says, uh, this is from uh, Exodus 9, but now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that you would have wiped, that would have wiped you off the earth. So Moses, during this time, speaks to God, or speaking for God, says, by the way, Pharaoh, God says, I could have sent a plague to wipe every one of you off the earth. That's my ability. That's my power. And, um, and so uh, keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, then in Romans 9, 17, uh, the word raised up just simply means to stand or to, uh, one commentator suggests, that I brought thee up on the stage of history. God is saying that in the this, in a, in a stage of history, I raised up Pharaoh, I brought him up, I, I raised him up on the stage of history for a purpose. Not to show his mercy, but to show his power, according to verse uh, 17 here. So um, uh, the point is God spared Pharaoh so God could display his power through him. Uh, the word hardened here uh, in verse 18, um, let me see, declared on the earth, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. The word hardened in verse 18 uh, just simply means to make hard. That's all it means. There's no great uh, insight here. Um, Exodus speaks ten times uh, in the book of uh, Exodus of Pharaoh's heart uh, being hardened. Ten different times. uh, So he could have quoted Exodus 8 and 9 tells us also that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And um, we see that if you look at... uh, uh, look at uh, Exodus 8:32 uh, a minute. I think this is helpful. Exodus 8:32 and it says here um, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at that time. Also, neither would he let the people go. So God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is also hardening his heart. If you look over across the page, we won't take time to look at it, chapter 9, verse 34. Um, that, that is this great uh, dilemma here, right? God's hardening, Pharaoh's hardening. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 a minute. Uh, I think this might give us some insight here. Um, That uh, Acts chapter 2, I wanted to read a quote here, and I'll see if I can find it. Acts, Acts chapter 2, look at verses 22 through 24, uh, or excuse me, uh, 20, yeah, 22 through 24. This is Peter speaking, and he says here, 
listen, listen to the, this is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility it wrapped up in a couple verses. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, this is Jesus, being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God. Who sent Jesus to be killed? God did, right? God did. But notice what he says. You, then he says, after God sent him, he says, you, this is man's responsibility, have taken by lawless hands and have crucified, crucified and put to death God, uh, whom God raised up and having loosed the pains of death because it was not, not, not possible that he should be held. Who crucified Christ? Who else? God, right? God sent Christ to be crucified. Probably one of the greatest crimes of all time, but it was by the hand of God. Thank heavens he sent him, right? Or we wouldn't be able to, we would never have uh, eternal life. But also the Jews are held responsible at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, that's the dilemma we're in here in Romans 9. Is Pharaoh responsible? Yes. Has God hardened Pharaoh's heart and raised him up for a purpose? Yes. How that all works out, uh, I'm not sure. I read this quote last week from uh, this man, A.B. Simpson, uh, the founder of Christian Missionary Alliance. We'll talk about this later. Uh, it says, uh, redemption is a sacred temple. On the front of it we read, whosoever will may come, but when we enter in, we find inscribed on the walls, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And that's, uh, when we get to the end of the chapter, we'll see uh, that that is true. Um, look, at, uh, look at verse uh, 19 here. Uh, he, uh, Paul says, I was looking for a, to read. Oh, here, I want to read this passage. Um, by the way, if you've never read this book, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, I would highly recommend it. I'm, I think I'm on my f fifth or sixth time through this fifth time. Um, he has a quote here um, on, uh, on, on, verse, on chapter page 144. He says, active hardening. Active hardening would involve God's direct intervention within the inner chambers of Pharaoh's heart. God would intrude into Pharaoh's heart and create uh, fresh evil into him. It would certainly ensure that Pharaoh would bring forth the results that God was looking for. It would also ensure that God is the author of sin. So that's, that's the fine line we have. God is not the author of sin. But then he goes on and he says, passive hardening is totally a different story. Passive hardening involves a divine judgment upon sin that is already present. All that God needs to do to harden the heart of a person whose heart is already desperately wicked is to give him over to sin. So we find the concept of divine judgment repeated in Scripture how does it work to understand it properly? We must first look at the concept of God's common grace. So the idea is, we won't take time to look at it, but the idea is, is that God withholds common grace from, from men and women, and therefore hardening his heart. And that's what happened to Pharaoh here. God is not the author of sin. He did not make Pharaoh sin. He simply took what was in Pharaoh's heart as the depraved, depraved man that he was, 
and withheld his mercy from it and, uh, and allowed Pharaoh to go his own way. So uh, does anybody have any comments or questions on that? I know this is deep. Yes. And he does that in his holiness without causing Pharaoh to sin. Now, if you can explain that, you please stand up and explain it to me because I don't understand it completely, but this is, this is what, what, what the scripture teach. Remember, he raised Pharaoh up not to show mercy, but to show his power, his power in, in Pharaoh. God had a purpose and sending the ten plagues, eventually he was going to kill all the firstborn. Uh, by the way, in the plagues, God showed mercy because only the, only uh, the Egyptians who were in the same general area, let's say in the, in the tri-state area, and only the Egyptians' animals died, not the Israelite animals. Only the Egyptian babies died, the firstborn, and their, their cattle. Not the, uh, only the flies came to the Egyptians, figure that out, um, I don't know, but not to the children of Israel. So, all right, let's move on here. Verse 19, uh, he says, you will say to me, why does God or he still find fault who has resisted his will? It's an obvious objection, right? Well, if, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart and made him to sin, which he didn't, some might say, well, how can you blame me? I, I, I'm innocent. You're the one that uh, God that um, that sent uh, your will. Uh, why does God find fault for resisting His will, or why would God hold me accountable if He is sovereign? Uh, here we have really the classic argument that comes from a failure to distinguish between uh, what what theologians call God's uh, secret or decreative will and His revealed or perceptive will. There's, there's the will of God that we just don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, there's this, uh, they call it the decreative will. Turn, uh, let me just turn to Isaiah 46, 10. I'll give you an example. Here, here's God's decreative will. Isaiah 46, 10. Paul, or excuse me, uh, Isaiah writes, uh, verse 9. Remember the former things, for I am God, and there's no other. No other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now listen. Declaring the ends from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And then he goes on to talk about calling uh, Cyrus uh, a bird of prey from the east, a man who executes my counsel, executes my counsel from a far country. This is God's secretive or decretive will. There's things that God will accomplish. He, his, his will will be accomplished in the end. There's also his revealed will or his perceptive will. What would that, what would that be? Think of the Ten Commandments, right? God has given us, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. That, does God stop every person in the world from committing adultery? The answer is obviously no, right? And so uh, thou shalt not um, steal. So there's the, there's the revealed will of God 
and there's also the, the creative will. The, the creative will will always stand. God's will, according to Isaiah, will be his purposes will stand. In the end, God's purpose will stand. During that time, there is a time when we have this, uh, we have this uh, will of God that, yes, uh, we can even say um, uh, he desires all men to, to come to Christ. Um, we, he, and we'll talk about that at the end here. But these are, this is a poor understanding. So uh, man cannot change God's decreative will. However, we are responsible for obeying his revealed will or his preceptive will. Uh, just look at two passages with me. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You probably know this because I've gone here uh, many times. God speaking to Moses here. He says, Moses speaking, says, uh, 29, 29, I, I, I encourage you to write this down in your Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There are things that God has revealed, right? The Ten Commandments. The, uh, our moral laws that are written within our heart, our conscience. But there are things that we just don't know how, and those, those are the secret things that belong to God. Uh, look in the New Testament at a uh, passage, uh, Luke 22. This is kind of interesting here in the New Testament. This is about uh, Judas. Let's start with verse 19. And speaking to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given to you, this do in remembrance of me. And then likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament, my covenant, my blood, which was shed for you. But now listen here. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Christ is going to go to the cross as has been determined, according to Acts 2, by the Father sent him to die. But notice what it says here. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Is Judas guilty? You better believe he's guilty. But God sent Christ in his secret will to die ahead of time, but yet in his sovereignty, Judas is held responsible. Uh, a, a great mystery. In fact, he says, um, this is also, I'll just read this, kind of funny. Then they begin to question among themselves which of it one that would do such a thing. All the disciples are going, is it us? Is it us? Is it us? No. But the point is that God was determined to send Christ to die for his elect. Judas is as responsible as responsible can be for, uh, for uh, denying Christ, or for, excuse me, for turning Christ over and betraying him. Um, so if, if you understand that MacArthur says God's sovereignty is never a legitimate excuse for human guilt. We cannot say that God made Judas sin. We can never say that. Judas sinned on his own. Pharaoh sinned on his own. Did God use that? Yes. To his, the creative 
all wise counsel, yes. Uh, how that all works out, uh, I don't exactly know. So I'll pause here for a minute. Um, I said we're deep in the woods this morning, and uh, this is the great mystery of God. It's either clear or you're just sitting here with glassy eyes. You have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, all right. Let's move on to verse 20 and 21. see here. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another to dishonor? Gets a little more uh, deep here um, in verses 20 and 21. Here, Paul, uh, really, he rebukes uh, the unbeliever uh, the, the human has no right to say to the sovereign Lord, why did you make me like this? Uh, Hendricks had said it's really a stupid question. I thought that was a great response from a commentator. He says, uh, that's really a stupid question. Uh, why would you say that? Um, because uh, in verse 21, uh, here Paul gives an example of the potter and the clay. Uh, the NIV uses the words noble or common for honor and dishonor, uh, kind of the same thing. Uh, if you've ever been to, um, I don't know, a county fair or a craft fair or even uh, Gatlinburg or whatever, you've seen the potter, right, and the wheel, and they turn the wheel and they put this big lump of clay on this thing and they form it and make it whatever it is. Uh, has anybody ever heard the clay speak? I've never heard a word out of that clay. I mean, you can throw it down and it doesn't say ouch. It can smash it. It never responds. And that's the point here that the potter, who's the potter in this story? God is the potter, and the clay is human race. God can do whatever he wants. He's God, right? He's sovereign. He's wise. Uh, and uh, he, he, can make, he can make whatever he wants. Um, as I said, I've never heard it. It would be ridiculous, actually, if you heard the clay speak. Uh, notice here it's also the same lump. It's one lump, and so God's dividing that lump. Uh, this lump represents all mankind. Uh, the potter can do as he wants with the lump of clay, and as the passage says, he can make a beautiful part of the lump. He could take part of the lump and make this beautiful statue. Um, when I was in grade school, we had clay art, clay art. What did, it, did anybody have clay art? What did you just make? What did you make, Bob? Remember? <laughs> I, that's exactly what I made. I was going to say ashtray. Everybody made ashtrays, you know. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say you made something like the Mona Lisa or something like that, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. So you could, I, I don't know, how many people made ashtrays when they were in art class? Yeah, exactly. Back then, everybody made ashtrays. So God could take, and, he could, and, and this is the analogy, he could make uh, a beautiful statue with that clay, or he can make an ashtray. It's his prerogative. And as the potter, as we are all in our class, we could have done whatever we want, right? Our teacher would have been impressed if we had come up with something really nice, but our limited abilities um, told us. So that, that's the point here. Uh, the, uh, the part of the lump, um, the lump can't ask. The meaning of the question here is, uh, is, uh, May not God without uh, 
uh, without injustice do something with the creature that he has made? Doesn't God have the right as the potter without doing injustice to do whatever he wants with the creature? What's the answer? It's rhetorical, right? Obviously, yes, he can. Do we all understand that? No, I don't. But this is what we learn from the scripture. So here we see in 22 and 24, uh, through 24, he continues, What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy? Here again, we continue. Uh, this is God's purpose first, uh, wanting to show his wrath. Notice that in verse 22 and following and then to make his power known. Uh, both of these are consistent with God's attributes. God is love, but he's also a God of wrath. And sometimes we forget that. He is holy. He is righteous. He will judge sin. Um, he will show mercy, right? But he is also uh, a God of, uh, of wrath. Uh, and we will see that. Um, it's important for us to remember that God is glorified both in his mercy and his wrath. Uh, both are his uh, attributes. Um, we often find this a hard truth to embrace, but it is true that somehow in God's wrath, uh, he, is, uh, he is glorified. In fact, I'll just ask you this. If God is not glorified in wrath, what what? What, hap- what, what do we have a problem with? We got a problem with the character of God, right? And then that's even a bigger problem. If God is in his attribute is wrath, and if he's not glorified, then there's something he's doing that doesn't bring glory to him. And that's a bigger, bigger problem than where we're at right now. Um, and so uh, God has that. Um, then he, he would not be God, really, if he was not glorified because he's glorified in all things. Um, turn back to Romans 118. Remember how I told you we have to keep going back in Romans because Paul's building his case. Remember what he started out in the very beginning of the, of the book with? And as remember, these are men and women, uh, boys and girls, sitting in a room hearing this letter read as a, a letter, not in chapters. This is a letter. So this would all be read at one time. And so their minds should have gone back to this in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He already told them in the beginning, right, in the very beginning of this letter, that God's wrath is part of God's character and that God's wrath is going to be revealed. And so here when we get to uh, Romans 9, uh, it should not be surprised, we should not be surprised to see uh, that uh, God's wrath, as he said, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, uh, is, is perfectly within God's character and is part of his eternal plan, as we saw in Romans 1.18. Um, uh, be reminded here also that God is also long-suffering, um, in, in this wrath. He says, uh, he says to make his power known in verse 22, endured with long suffering or much long suffering the vessels of wrath. Um, he is not quick to wrath. 
in fact, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says God has called all men everywhere to repent. He is long-suffering. The, the gospel goes out to all men. Um, and he calls us in verse, uh, let me see, in verse uh, 22, prepared for destruction. The word prepared uh, in the King James uh, can also be translated, and this is a little bit different from some of the commentators. Some commentators say God prepared men to wrath. He, he created man, certain men, to wrath. I, I find that difficult to understand. Uh, other commentators translate it like this. Uh, God can have him prepare themselves for wrath. And the Greek word can be translated like that, having prepared themselves for wrath. They were born, Romans 5, uh, they were born uh, fallen sons of Adam, and they came into the world as sinners under the umbrella of Adam's sin, and so men and women are responsible for themselves. Is God long-suffering with them? Yes. But are they responsible ultimately for their own sin? Yes, and I think it helped me to understand that, um, to see that they were preparing themselves. So the idea is uh, those disobedient uh, sinners stand ready for destruction uh, because of their own deeds. And then in verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, this is uh, obviously the opposite. Here we see God's eternal purpose to save a people for himself. Uh, we talked last week about the two circles. You know, there's the circle with Romans 5, uh, 5, 12 with Adam. And then there's a circle of God's elect. So the, uh, excuse me for my writing here, but this thing's moving. You, you can't, all of us are born in here. We're all born children of wrath, sons of wrath. We can only be moved into here by God's mercy and his long-suffering and his, uh, and, and of course, by faith, right? By faith, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that, that is what he's saying here in verse, uh, verse 23. Uh, we, uh, we are brought um, to this remarkable difference between God's mode of dealing with uh, the, with the uh, wicked. Some he saves, some he doesn't. And, um, and, and again, look at that, look at verse 23. He says that he might have mercy or make known the rich of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, uh, Revelation 13 tells us that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, Christ was crucified. And at that point, uh, uh, apparently God chose for himself a people uh, to redeem. Uh, Barnes in his notes says this, we are here brought to the remarkable difference between God's mode of dealing with them and the wicked. That's the righteous and the wicked. Here it is expressly affirmed, I think this is important, that God himself has prepared for, for them uh, uh, 
Let me read this again. This is Barnes saying, It is important and expressly affirmed that God himself hath prepared for them for glory. In regard to the wicked, it is simply affirmed that they were, that they were fitted for destruction. Notice the difference in verse 23. God prepared them for glory, uh, and he prepared beforehand for glory, but the other vessels were fitted for destruction by their own sinful will. Uh, and so if, if, if God wouldn't have shown his mercy, we would have all still been in here. There would have been no other circle or no other uh, people. And so, uh, again, uh, we see God's uh, merciful hand. Turn to Acts thirteen forty eight a minute, and, and we'll see an example of this uh, in the New Testament. This is Paul preaching and uh, here, think of this, this circle, all men dead and trespasses in sin, and the second circle of the elect, uh, Acts uh, 13, uh, in verse 48. And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And notice what it says, as many as been appointed or shown mercy, prepared beforehand, you can put any of the words in there, for eternal life, believed, had faith. And so that's the great mystery that Paul is trying to reveal here in Romans 9, that there are people who are going to be born and die, and the wrath of God is going to be on them. Did God create them like that? No. They're responsible from Romans chapter 5 for their own sin. The wrath of God from Romans 1 will be on them. There is also other people that in his sovereign wisdom has decided to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And if you're in Christ today, that would be you and I. And, um, and without that, uh, we would not have um, any hope. Um, the, uh, uh, this is, a, uh, again, the destruction is a clear reference to heaven and hell. The, the, uh, uh, we can't avoid that. Uh, there, there's either heaven or hell is going to be the final state of, of of men and women from all around the world uh, for all eternity. Um, Hebrews 10, let me just turn here quickly. Hebrews 10, I think this is helpful to me, uh, or excuse me, yeah, Hebrews 2.10. Listen to God's purpose in sending Christ uh, here. He says, uh, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And then that's Jews and Gentiles. Now notice in verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things, by whom uh, are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make them the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. That was Christ's purpose in coming, to bring many sons to glory. He came to move men and women, boys and girls, from this circle to this circle, prepared before the foundations of the world. Again, I don't understand how that all works, but I simply leave to you what the Scripture says, um, that uh, some will be saved and some will not. And then in verse 24, uh, he goes on, he says, Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Anybody glad to hear that verse? 
right? We should all be excited about that verse. Not of the Jews only. Not all Israel is Israel, but not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That's you and I. Uh, we are recipients of God's mercy, not because we deserved it, but because he decided in eternity past to have mercy on whom he would have mercy. Uh, I won't take time to read verses 22 through 20, uh, 25 through 29. Um, I just read MacArthur's notes here real quick. Um, he says, uh, Paul finishes his argument that Israel's unbelief is not consistent with God's plan of redemption uh, by using the Old Testament, showing that her unbelief reflects exactly what the prophets recorded, and that it is consistent with God's prerequisite for faith. Uh, he uses two Old Testament examples to show that Israel and Isaiah and Hosea, uh, uh, Hosea they will not be ultimately, there will be a people saved for themselves, for God, uh, from Israel. All Israel will not be destroyed. When we get into uh, Romans 11, we'll see that Paul even says all Israel will be saved. We'll talk about that then. But I want to just jump over and close with these uh, couple verses in verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? Are the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained a righteousness even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were by works, or through the law, but by that they might stumble at the stumbling block, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul really states the conclusion here, that he's been building towards. Uh, the conclusion is the collision between God's sovereignty and man's will. Um, the uh, two propositions appear here to contradict each other, but they are not contradictive, as we've already talked about. Um, they are taught, we, are, we teach and, and preach the free offer of the gospel. Uh, Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's, that's what we do as believers. That's what we do as a church. But we also preach and teach that man is dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians chapter 2, and that it cannot be made alive without God. Are both to be taught? Yes, right? At one at the exclusion of the other? No. And, and that's Paul is making this point here. As far as human can see, the gospel goes forth to all men and women, uh, and as far as God is concerned, only those that were chosen before the foundation of the world will come to him. Uh, we don't uh, get to see them. Uh, Jesus says in John 6, 44, uh, uh, I better look at it here. Jesus' own words. In John 6, 37, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. We are responsible to come to Christ. But in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Right? Come to Christ. We preach it every week. Come to Christ by faith. And the mistake that the Jews made is they were trying, according to Paul here, they were trying to obtain the righteousness of God by works, by keeping the law. 
and the Gentiles who really didn't have the law, weren't even seeking it, through the gospel were told you have to seek it by faith, and they did. And, and that's, that's the great dilemma. The point of verse 30 is that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness had no knowledge or even cared about sex things, had laid hold of the prize of uh, this great prize uh, of, of uh, justification by faith alone. That, that came to the Gentiles uh, that the Jews had all this uh, revelation from Romans chapter 9 early on. They had all this, but they missed it because they were trying to get to heaven by keeping the law and doing good works. And really, that's the great divide in our day, right, isn't it? And it's always been the great divide. There's two ways to heaven, either salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the righteousness of Christ alone, or your own good works. And biblical Christianity makes it very clear that there is salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And all other religions are really going to end up over here. There's really no hope for them unless God does a work and brings them over into, um, into the uh, circle of sovereign grace. Uh, the, uh, he ends here, uh, it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Who do you think he's talking about there? Christ, right? What did the Jews stumble over in the New Testament? That Jesus was the Messiah. Right? They could not get it through their head that Jesus was the Messiah. Attested to them by signs and miracles and wonders, according to Hebrews 2, but they rejected him, and this is a quotation from Isaiah, that uh, they rejected Christ. They stumbled over salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, so I'll leave it with that. If you have any questions, um, see me. I, I just, I, I'll just end with this. Um, we have, uh, Paul had a passion for the gospel to go out, but for us that have received the gospel, there should be no boasting, but nothing but humility that we have received God's grace, because without that, we would be hopeless and helpless uh, for Christ. So if you have any questions, see me later. Thanks.